I've been looking through old journals and in them finding anecdotes of dreams from the distant past. So often they're just these one-liners, clues as to what the dreams might have been, but it's mostly what we get out of dreams anyway, isn't it? A decade ago I woke up and wrote, Last night I dreamt of a beautiful bird called a Craig bird. (laughs) Craig is not a beautiful name. There was a boy in my primary school class who was Craig, and he was really not a pretty lad. Perhaps he's my archetype of a Craig. So it's hard to imagine why a beautiful bird should be called Craig. It's tempting to say that it's meant to say crag. That's uh, how the Welsh word for rock is spelt and pronounced crag, C-R-A-I-G. And so we might well picture the crag bird being a raptor with a chocolate brown or pearl white or dusk mauve colour to its plumage. An elegant creature who soars from her nest and oversees the great glens, seeks out shrews and voles and returns to the rock structure of her home. But no. That would be bad faith. I know that that's not the dream I had. I dreamed of the Craig bird, cursed with an ugly name, but oh so beautiful. Now, in all sincerity, I believe I can see something of its appearance now, in memory. An indistinct form. A fluttering, somersaulting figure dressed in silence and all in blue. I look to Slater's Field Guide of Australian Birds, thinking that perhaps there's some similar mainland wren or a, or a miniature parrot. But no, there's not. And even my Birds of India book yields nothing. Nothing in the Himalayas or down those great river systems. Not down in the tropical south or on those aloof islands, Andaman and Nicobar. Perhaps another country's bird guides would reveal my Craig bird. Perhaps it belongs to Madagascar or Nicaragua, but I really don't think so. In fact, I know that it's not right. The Craig bird was born in a cleft in my brain. He tumbled out alone into the world, a blue smudge on the air. He tangled himself up, so excited he was to exist. I don't know what he eats. Maybe the ticks that get caught up in his feathers. He's not the smartest bird. But he is the most fully present, a dancer in the early hours, always. And when someone asked his name, he shrugged, as best as a bird can shrug. And he said, Craig. Perhaps this is a pseudonym, and he has some secret inner name. But I realise now what's more likely. That that boy, Craig, who was in my primary school class and was not so beautiful all those years ago, he had a secret inner self. That Craig was a secret dancer, all blue feathers and tumble turns. And although I was only six when I knew him, and had to wait more than ten years to dream of it, and then didn't figure it out until a decade later, 
Now I know. When I first met this boy, Craig, I intuited who he really is and saw how the Craig bird flies. I chose to live in an old train carriage, off the grid and out of harm's way for the most part. I made the choice largely so that I could get more writing done, and more or less that's what's happened. This small space which I inhabit is perfect in its simplicity. It's a shelter in which my imagination is safe to perform its acrobatics. But nevertheless, it often happens that I'll be trying to sit and diligently scribble when my mind is distracted by the movement of one of the many birds that make their way between the branches of the trees and the forest that surrounds me. We know birds mostly by their habits of movement. I mean the raven's heavy wing beat, yes, or the fairy wren's finicky fluttering the falcon soaring in a placid circle, ready to pivot on its core and turn into a freshly sharpened weapon. Sometimes after these distractions, I look down at my notebook and find that my handwriting has been affected by the flight techniques of my visitors, and my sentences streak like rosellas, or twist and turn like fantails. But when we try to understand birds, we are not only thinking of the way they fly, but why they fly. There are birds with specific tastes, those who are attracted to certain flowers or grubs, and so move seasonally to find these. There are those who travel great distances to give birth, or those who keep to a small neighbourhood and use all of its resources for feeding and mating and making nests. When we see a bird that is not moving at all, just sitting on the ground, it's as if we've seen something that's lost its purpose, that's lost its identity. I now know by name most of my avian mates, but occasionally I see a silhouette or a certain feather pattern that I don't recognise immediately. And so I have to reach for my ornithological guide and flip through its pages to try and figure out who it is that I've seen. These bird books are funny works of literature. I do not envy the writers who have to try and transcribe bird calls into Roman letters. Does any turn really say chewik, sack, or zrit? 
Can anyone tell me what these birds behind me are currently saying? And are writers not forced to simply give up when asked to account for the concupiscent call of the Tasmanian native hen? Everyone seems convinced that a crescent honey-eater says, Egypt, Egypt. It's apparently unanimous. For years I thought this was a conspiracy. Of course I could hear a rough approximation. But then again, it could have been pretty well any bisyllabic word or phrase. Like, zip it, zip it. Or perhaps it was saying, Fiji, Fiji, or Europe, Europe. I was surprised that everyone was in unison with this idea. To the point that some twitchers will simply call the bird an Egypt and leave it at that. But once shortly after I moved into the train carriage, I found a young crescent honey-eater just by the back step. Presumably it had flown into the window, although that was both unlikely and unfortunate, since the window is pretty small and has a big crack in it, which you would think would affect the illusion that the bird was sailing through clear air. But nevertheless, there it was. A bundle of yellow, black, white and grey feathers, forlorn and moribund on the stone path I've built between the carriage and the little cottage where I sleep. Its eyes were half shut, squinting in pain or sadness, perhaps. In truth, I could tell that the honey-eater was semi-conscious, or somewhat less than that and I too felt some sorrow at the thought that I might have to do something awful and put it out of its misery, as we say. For the meantime, I left it there and went about my business in the train, reading books and making cups of tea and talking to myself, every now and then going back to check on this honey-eater. And for a good few hours, it didn't make any progress and for not the first time I pondered the ethics of killing an animal in order to make sure it feels no further pain. A complicated thought. And perhaps the bird could read my mind because it blinked urgently, and then looked up at me, and jumped a little as if it had seen something that had given it a fright. Hello, little maid, I said. What are you doing here? Tell me a bit about yourself. Well, for a good while, the honey-eating still gave no reply. Yet I kept asking the same sorts of questions to invite it back into the land of the living. What's your name? Do you know who the Prime Minister is? Well, what can you tell me? Egypt it said. I smirked a bit. Well, what about Egypt? And then the crescent honey-eater said something that I had never seen registered in any bird book anywhere. Shaking out its feathers and holding its chin upright, it began to belt out an old hymn in a high pitch that I won't even try to replicate. But the hymn went like this. 
from Egypt lately come, where death and darkness reign. We seek a new and better home, where we our rest shall gain. Very excitably, the honey eater now leaped from the ground and flew towards the biggest gum tree in the yard. There it clung to a branch and dug its beak into some amber treacle coming from beneath a sheet of bark. Egypt, Egypt, it chirped, as if this was a reference to a life story it held on to tightly, a creation myth, an explanation of its origins. Egypt, Egypt, a metaphor for the dream of movement that lives in every bird's resplendent little heart. I've just come back from my mate's place, bit of a bonfire, and um, had a couple of stouts. I'm a little bit tipsy, and you may have to bear with me for a minute here, because this is another story of a dream. And like most dreams, this one is a narrative of nonsense. It takes leaps of faith, makes loop-de-loops of logic, movements of a kind only truly available to the subconscious. But I'm going to tell you this story nevertheless, to see if together we can't make a little bit of sense of it. Last night, among all else, I dreamt of something or someone called Vizzy. A vague enough start to a story, I understand. But this I instinctively realised, somewhere between being awake and deep in REM sleep, was a reference to another phrase of pure gobbledygook, one which I invented, inadvertently, but whilst awake, in an Albanian resort town a few years ago. The phrase was flitare visatemi, which I believed were the words for an artist's sketchbook, a notebook with blank pages, in my case to be used as a journal. Flitare visatemi. I have no idea where I got these words from. Some failed phrase book, perhaps, or the internet. Yet I stomped down to the stationery store with the greatest confidence and declared that this was what I was looking for. 
Nie flitare visatemi, please. No one knew what I meant. I may well have been enunciating pure gibberish. And the crabby old lady at the counter scowled and glared at me. I tried instead gabbling at her in Greek. I understood that many Albanians speak Greek. Um, I don't really, but I wasn't going to let that stop me. So I said, a book. I pray with pages. With none of this. Here I was tracing out the lines since I didn't know the Greek word for line. Not with this. I am travelling, I said in a lord-like manner. Taxi devil. The old lady eventually yielded something pretty ordinary and at least had blank pages, but it was bound with a stiff spine of cardboard which later snapped in half when I dropped it from the loft of a mountain hut like a fledgling that fell from its nest. So now for the next connection. There is a bird named the Grey Shrike Thrush, which with its fierce whistling melodies makes its presence felt in the forest around the train carriage in which I live. Sometimes these birds arrive in a bunch with one of their giddy tunes, singing like there's a gypsy band pressed into their proud, pallid chests. Whoever called them Grey Shrike Thrush didn't understand anything about how to go about giving a name. Yes, the mentioned bird is mostly clad in grey. And yes, the genus to which they belong means nothing more than Shrike Thrush in Latin. But this is not a bird that should bear such a matter-of-fact name. It should have been named more carefully or with a bit more flair, with at least a little bit more thought. It's a weird bird, full of contradictions, plain to look at, yet instantly recognisable, a maker of music, compositions that can be peaceful and hypnotic, or else excited and feverish. Fortunately, the subconscious's sleight-of-hand games give me the chance to take all these specific words and images and bring them sliding into place. Because as my dream alighted into wakefulness this morning, it became plainly obvious to me that when I came up with that outrageous pseudo-Albanian phrase some years ago, I was preemptively inventing the name of these much-whistling birds of the Tasmanian forest. Flitare visitemi. Or visi for short. No selection of syllables better suits these melodic birds in the gum trees around my shack. And that is that. When I dreamed of the word visi, I was really grasping for something to call these fellow creatures whose company I enjoy so often. It should be no surprise that birds and dreams cross paths so frequently, at such oblique angles. 
the leaps and loop-de-loops, of course, have much the same shape to them. Perhaps in the beginning, when it was inventing dreams, the human brain instinctively turned to the eccentricities of birds and used their patterns of flight as blueprints for the stories we get to tell ourselves in them. The roads on my island travel in unlikely shapes, moving at unusual angles, like the trimmed limbs of a young oak. So it's no surprise that at each unexpected corner, a different bird waits its turn to swoop before the path of your vehicle. Sometimes they seem to be in disguise till they fly, like the peregrine falcon on the top of the power line which looks a bit like a knobbly gothic decoration till it leaps to the hunt. A crowd of currawongs takes off like it's planning to mislead and confuse, each going in a different direction, painting black streaks across the windshield, obscuring your vision, upsetting your mind. It's like you've driven into an ambush, and someday you might. A relay of kookaburras once followed me through a forest road in the middle of the night, flying in linked loops, made pale by moonlight, angelic or wraith-like, I never quite worked that out. Once I was driving through a remote valley of farmland, one of those anonymous districts of undulated terrain in which every homestead is built of weatherboard and seems abandoned. Knolls show off scalps of maroon soil exposed by erosion. Sheds sit on a lean like an old sheep on its haunches, struggling to get up. With some pathos, you look upon a macrocarpa pine, planted eons ago by someone who has since forgotten it. Its gnarled trunk has grown beefy and threatens to break in twain, while cones crumble in a circumference beneath the outstretched branches. You hear a sharp, screeching call, like that of a vulture. A single sharp whistle, an omen of danger. A placid horse in a paddock seems resigned to a fate that you would not wish upon anyone. That day I drove with caution, fearing every bend, feeling some presentiment of what was to come. The wind picked up, channeled between the hills, 
at one point pushing me along and then hitting my windscreen head-on with the force of a Mack truck. It became such a hurricane that I decided to turn onto a side road and pull over, hoping I could wait out the gale. And indeed, the wind rattled the car a little while longer, then subsided, as it often does in Tasmania, died down, leaving a strange absence in its wake, a hollow feeling, like an emptiness in the atmosphere. The wind was gone, but I saw something soaring from the westward, veering in my direction, a white scrap of feathers. It was a sulphur-crested cockatoo, seeming like a parachutist, lost, indecently white against the slate-blue squall behind it, a magnesium flame flashing over the landscape. At the best of times, a sulphur-crested cockatoo looks like it has little control over its flight path, flapping briefly, then trying to take in a breeze, as if its wings were in fact sails. Or as if its true purpose was to do nothing more than be an animated windsock. But this cocky looked totally up shit creek as it wrestled with the air. And then just as it neared where I sat at the wheel of my stationary car, it misjudged one of its manoeuvres and came crash-landing into the dry grass in the field next to me. I got out of the car and ran over to attend to the fallen bird. It was easy to find, its feathers glowing in the dust, all folded up. It looked like an enormous silk cocoon, except for the yellow cowlick that stuck up at the back of its noggin, the awful hairstyle of some overpaid soccer player. The cockatoo was conscious. It looked up at me with a pained look in its onyx black eyes. Now I have studied first aid, so I began to take mental notes on its condition, hoping that eventually I could get it to a vet. There was no blood, and the bird seemed aware of its situation. Speaking to it in soothing tones, I began to gently press my fingers into the cocky's feathers, testing its body for injury, trying to ascertain which bones were broken, where it was hurt. Going down lengthwise, I found nothing, but the cockatoo had its wings folded tightly, and now I had to convince it to let me open these up so I might investigate its span for wounds. The bird was reluctant, to say the least. But I kept murmuring reassuringly, carefully prizing open those wings, pushing them back to check out what had happened to them. Yet as the wings opened, I found something I had not expected. And I had this strong feeling come over me, one which I have experienced before but only rarely a premonition that I had stumbled upon something significant. That my life had reached a kink in the track and that I would not be the same from here on out. For someone, on the impeccable belly of this sulphur-crested cockatoo, had written in rich ink a statement 
in the form of a poem in English. The cockatoo looked up at me expectantly as I slowly read out the words of the poem in its plumage. What comes from the air must eventually meet the land. Every burst of wind, every storm, every bird, every bolt of lightning is an effort of the skies to meet with soil and stone and living things. I shook my head at the marvellous coincidence of that moment, the magic of having been where I was when the wind threw up this strange living poem a mere few yards from where I'd pulled over. But of course now there were unanswered questions. Who wrote these words? And for whom? From where was the bird sent? And why was there a poem upon this cockatoo? I was looking deep into the eyes of this cockatoo I'd found, as if I could deduce the answers through interspecies telepathy. And then I saw a flash of movement in the periphery of my vision. I turned to see another sulphur-crested cockatoo behind me, and another, and another. A flock. And a bloody big flock at that. You may have seen massive congregations of cockies before, but I swear this was the biggest ever. Hundreds of white wings were flapping around, thousands of them, like someone had torn up the whole day's publication of newspapers and tossed them into the empty paddocks of this unpopulated district. They came towards me, as if approaching their fallen friend, I presumed, and I was hoping that they would attend to it, this hurt bird that I'd come upon. But then I looked more closely at the cockatoos as they landed around me. They threw their wings open and showed their stomachs. And upon every single bird, there were words. Written indelibly in prose or verse. Passages of literature that dealt with the deepest matters of the heart. Somehow I had stumbled into a library of cockatoos. An ornithological anthology like I'd never seen before in my life. So what did I do? did the only thing I could. One by one, I took each bird in my hands, held back the wings, and read their stories aloud.
basically every time I put together a to-do list, I add that I'm going to write to her. But like buying a pair of Ugg boots or fixing up that wonky door, it's something that I keep putting off. Perhaps I only reflect on it so much because she's got one of those names that just comes up. There's that river on the mainland and an archaeological site near ancient Babylon with a similar sounding name and there's an indigenous language somewhere. And if you put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, then her name's pretty much like that of a girl I went to primary school with. Or maybe it's more to do with the sorts of things that remind me of her. One of the short stories of Catherine Mansfield. Someone speaking Finnish. A worm in the grass. Potatoes. The number four. If I were to write to her, I would say that I am watching a fantail right now, dancing asymmetrically in the air as if it were a marionette on strings being pulled by a merciless puppeteer. Or that just before a fairy wren poked about the front deck as if with some great purpose, then hopped up onto a ceramic vase, pulled a grumpy face, turned around and shat in it. I would write that on the plateau a few months ago, a wedge-tailed eagle looked me square in the eye, at eye level, just as I hit the escarpment and just before it took off with a few serious flaps of its wings, and then found itself soaring over the valley, a kilometre of air between it and earth. And I would mention that it was on my right and that the ancient Greeks believed that it was good luck to have an eagle on your right-hand side. She had an idiosyncratic and untested hypothesis that humans had descended more directly from avian fauna than scientists have generally suggested. She would say that she felt a close kinship with swans, that she'd learned to see blackbirds as cousins, Albatross as grandparents. Have you ever seen a chicken, she said? How much they look like a human child? Or a stand-up comedian? She said we were the strangest birds of all. Birds who dwelt on their memory, who couldn't leave their past behind. The only birds who'd bothered to try and ascertain where they fit into the schemes of the earth, who'd tried to understand their evolution. Have you ever seen a bird with a broken heart? A bird so solemnly burdened by memory and responsibility? We adapted badly, she said. The other birds will come to dominate us. They don't even recognise us. We deserve whatever we get. If I wrote to her, I would also have to say, it is true. I remember. The exact phrase she used. The arbitrary spot where we said goodbye. The long walk I took 
the hollowness inside, the bitter taste in my mouth. The next day's drive towards a destination so uncertain and inscrutable it may as well have been a journey to another realm. Instead I found myself halfway up a mountain in the middle of the night. Snow flew in like a thousand white goshawks swooping. With my mind consumed by her ideas, I contemplated the possibility of flight. Flight and forgetting. As if this were the moment for a chance mutation. Like the failure of our friendship might be a significant epigenetic event. If I ever get around to writing to her, I'll tell her. I saw a thousand white goshawks swooping, letting out a scream so high-pitched it was much more like a pulse. It pierced the plasma in my bones, yet I did not join their flock. I remained human, stayed the strangest bird of all. <laughs>